Hello, and welcome back to Stalking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osman, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Ketubot, daf Samachet, page 69. So I, I found this daf to be very, very rich, and Anne and I were sort of going through what we wanted to talk about, because at least before the Mishnah, there's just a lot of nice, interesting detail about the Tanayim, Amurayim, their relationships, how they talk to each other, how they think about things. And this is why Chavruta learning is so great, because I was attracted to a particular set of stories. And Anne, what did you say to me? You go, oh, that's so funny. Those are the stories I would have talked about. So I think part of the riches of just learning in general is that when you do it with somebody, and uh, I guess I'm just going to do a little shout out, Anne, not to get sappy with you today, but I guess I will, that, you know, I think that's part of what why we like learning with each other is we really are attracted and see totally different things on the top, what jumps out at us. If I learned to somebody who thought exactly the way I did, that would be very, very boring. So we're going to try to cram a lot into today's episode. So I may do a little bit more outside of the top. All right, let's just start. So the top begins with this excellent story about Rub and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And first of all, I love this story because I think we've spoken about this many times, but now we actually see it on the pages of the Gemara itself. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is of the last generation of the Tanaim. He's considered to be the redactor, the editor of the Mishnah itself. And Rav actually did study with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi for a time in Eretz Yisrael, where Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi lived. But eventually he becomes a Rosh Yeshiva in, uh, in Babel, and he's a first-generation Amora. But here we have a scenario where they really interact with each other. They have a correspondence with each other. And so we sort of see in this brief passage here that intersection, that shift from Tanaim to Amorayim. And then we'll even get, there's even a better level uh, to the story as well. So the story goes, So Rav sent a question for Rabbi Yehudanasi between the lines of a letter that he sent him. So that's also very interesting. So I, I almost read this as like he sent him a letter of correspondence and within that letter there happened to be a halakhic uh, question. And so the question is, if you have brothers who mortgaged a property, right, what's the halakha? In other words, is the property, can you seize that property if you need to in order to give daughters, in order to give their sisters the proper dowry that they Deserved, right? So Rabbi Chia was sitting in front of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi basically when he got this letter. Amar lay. And then they have a whole question about what exactly did the letter mean, right? Oh, Mahru or Mishkanu, right? Did he mean that they sold the property or is it that they pledged the property as a guarantee and the property had not been transferred yet? Amar lay. So Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi says back to Rabbi Chia. My nafkamine, he says, what difference does it make? Right, either way, whether they sold it or pledged it, the court can basically take that property to give it for the daughter's dowries, the sister's dowries, but they cannot form mizono just for the sustenance uh, that they are allowed to have. Then the Gemara gets into a very interesting question about why did Rav use the specific language of ha'achim uh, she'ibdu and why didn't he specify machru uh, or mishkanu and they give explanations for why he needed to be specific with both of those cases. Um, but again, just a very fascinating interaction 
where this is like the Tanaim and Amoraim interacting with each other. The last generation of the Tanaim, right? Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. We know the Tanaim are all in Eretz Yisrael. Rav, who studies with, with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi in Eretz Yisrael, but eventually goes to Babel. And then finally, we have Rabbi Yochanan. And this is what makes the Daf even more exciting because Rabbi Yochanan is a first generation Amora, but he's in Eretz Yisrael. So we sort of have like, it's full circle here, the end of the Tanaim, and we see here the split between Babel and Eretz Yisrael, Babel being with this question that Rav asked. And then we have this scenario with Rabbi Yochanan, where Rabbi Yochanan says, whether this, whether this or whether that, the court does not, you know, basically can't take a sign or sold properties for either the dowry or the sustenance of the of these daughters. And so then the Gemara one says, And so what they want to know is, Rabbi Yochanan's opinion does not fit Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's, because Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi said you can take the property for dowry, but not for Mizonot. Rabbi Yochanan's statement is saying you can't take it for dowry or for Mizonot. And so therefore the question is, did Rabbi Yochanan even know this ruling of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi? And had he heard it, would like, so either did he not, never hear it, or had he heard it, would he have accepted it? Or maybe he heard it and he hadn't actually accepted it. So that's also fascinating because we've seen so many scenarios. We've seen this particularly in this Masachat where uh, Rabbi Huda Nasi seems to, his opinion, his halakha trumps everybody. And here we're brought up with the, basically the possibility that Rabbi Yochanan, it's possible he's allowed to disagree with Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. Like there's no questioning of that as a possibility. They, they give it out as one of the scenarios uh, that this could actually be. So I'm not going to go through how they work it out. They quote some other sources and they try to figure out, did he know Rabbi Yehuda Nasi's statement and agree with it? Not just not agree with it, or maybe he had never learned it. Um, but again, I just loved the beginning of this staff, this, this intersection of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rav, Rabbi Yochanan. It, it, it's exactly like it's, it's at this golden moment when we transition from the Tanaim in Eretz Yisrael and move to sort of this split Amuraim of Babel and Eretz Yisrael. It's interesting to think about how they made the decision to put the daf together this way, right? Meaning they being the people who put the daf together. I, you know, it's not exactly an account of, it's not a transcription, put it that way. Right. It's not a transcription. And also the idea of this correspondence between, you know, by letter, I loved also. Right. Nowadays, we've kind of forgotten about the art of letter writing, but this is this dump actually has quite a few letters and they're kind of important. Here, I'm going to skip down to further on a Madalaf. Um, and the halachic discussions shifts, I guess. We're, here we're talking really about the rights of a daughter to receive the dowry from the estate, which we've already been discussing. But this is the question that's under discussion by Amemar. And we're going to see it's in discussion with Rav Ashi. Amar Amemar, Bat Yoreshet Havia. She was, the, the daughter is in fact considered an heir, somebody who inherits. Amar Le Rav Ashi La Amemar, Ilu Baila Saluka Bazuze. So Rav Ashi says to Amemar, according to what you're saying, then if a different heir wants to remove this daughter from amongst all the other heirs, 
you know, by paying her off, let's say, right, really, by giving her money rather than having her take her inheritance from the inherited property. The question is, can he do that? Can he remove her? The low Mati Lisluka, Mati is can and Sluka is to remove her. Amrlay In, Amemer says, yes, in fact, she, um, you know, the question is, I'm sorry, I've said it backwards. Is he unable to remove her? So then the question, the answer is yes, meaning yes, he is unable to remove her. She is allowed. It depends on what she wants, right? She's allowed to say, no, she's going to only inherit the actual inherited property. So again, Ravashi asks Amemar, well, what if he wants to remove her by giving her a specific piece of land, right? You know, is is he still unable to remove her in that way? You know, once she's got that right to come and collect that specific piece of property. And again, Amemar says, yes, he is, you know, restricted. He's not allowed to buy her off, so to speak, with other property or other, you know, cash either, right? Now, she may she has the right to say she wants to get the inherited property. It's not clear to me, at least not at this point, right? It's not clear to me whether she would also be allowed to accept the the offer, right? The fact that she's the heir means that she's entitled to stand on principle, get the inherited property, but the question of whether she's allowed to accept the offer is um, not yet answered. Rav Ashi Amar Bat Balat Chov Havaya. So in contrast to Amemar, we have Rav Ashi say, really the daughter is considered not an heir, not an inheritor, but a creditor. What does that mean? Right, that the, 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 the other inheritors, the other heirs are going to make sure to pay her to provide for her as if she were somebody who, you know, that the estate owed money to. In a way, the estate does owe money to her. But there's a difference between an inheritance and an IOU. So Ravashi's take is different from Amemar's, just in terms of the setup of what her terms are to begin with. And then Amemar eventually went back on his own opinion because the Amar Rav Menyumi because what happens? Rev Minyumi, who's the son of Rev Nichumi, says, I was standing there before Amemar, and so a woman come, came before him, came before Amemar, and she was asking for a tenth of the property of the estate. So then he, meaning Rav Minyumi, saw that Amemar saw that his opinion was that if the the heirs want to remove her by giving her money, in fact, they can do so because that's what the brothers of this woman who had come before Amemar were saying. Meaning if we... Meaning if we had the money, we would pay you off and remove you from the list of the, of the people who can put a claim on this estate. And then the Ishtik, Amemar was silent. He did not say anything to them. Meaning you would think that if he thinks that the brothers are wrong, that not just that they can't do it because they don't have any money, so what's the point? You would think that Amemar would kind of chime in and say, listen, even if you had the money, that wouldn't work. Um, 
So it sounds like we've got a contradiction of Maymar against a Maymar. So now the question is, you know, once, once, if we're going to establish that she's not an inheritor, an heir, but a creditor, like, uh, you know, somebody who gets an IOU, is the IOU really that which went to the father, the person who died, or to the brothers who are, in fact, the heirs? And the Gemara answers, like, what's the practical difference between who owes her the money? Now, this puts us in this line, puts us into a whole other area of halacha, which we will discuss in depth in the future. I think it's come up very briefly in the past, but this issue of whether the quality of the land that she would be paid off with, whether it needs to be, uh, you know, can it be of the, what they'll call like the, the middle level of quality of land, or could it be, um, Beziburit, Ziburit being the lesser quality of land, meaning it has to be the same value in total that she's in, that she's owed, right? If she's owed, you know, a thousand shekel, then she has to get paid a thousand shekel in land. But does that mean that she's getting a small portion of, you know, decent land? It's not amazing, but it's decent. Or is she getting a larger portion of less decent land? Um, and, you know, it's not so good, but she gets more of it. Um, so, and if she's in the point here is that if it's the father who is the credit right, she is the father's creditor, meaning he owes her, he in his in his demise owes her, then she can collect the ziburit. But if it's the brothers, then she collects benonit. Then she collects that middle level of land um, because it's a, because it, it's no longer this Yerusha status. It's a little bit complicated, and I will admit that I'm not sure where that line kicks in between why she'd be considered an heir for Ziburit, meaning that she's going to get the lesser quality of land as an as a as an inheritor when we've just established her not to be the inheritor. Um, and so the Gemara goes on to kind of to prove this out, you know, why it is that she's going to end up being able to collect the Benonit land. Um, you know, this question of whether it's going to be the intermediate middle level of land or whether she can only get the lesser land. Um, and maybe she'll even need to take an oath to be able to collect. Um, I'm going to stop here. Yardana, you have one more story I think you want you wanted to go into before we get to the Mishnah. I just want to note, you know, the part of what I really appreciate here is that we have here a halakhic discussion, right, that then has Chazal talking about it as in, in a narrative voice, meaning Chazal themselves have the story of how to figure out what they think about the halacha. And within that story, you know, we end up with a real-life person who has a real-life scenario who needs to be addressed. So it's not, this is this passage that I've read, I relate to it as a story as well. Um, I think, Yerdan, it's what you said also about the Tanayim and Amorayim. We're relating to the talking about halacha as the story, as opposed to a once upon a time, people went and did thus and such, and then that, you know, they had an adventure and so on and reached salvation, right? The point is that even sometimes, not always, but even sometimes the Gemara will talk about the opinions of Chazal in the narrative voice. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it's interesting that they do talk about them this way. It's, it's, it's a literary style of the Gemara itself that we need to pay attention to. I'm going to hop down to one other story which again, the Gemara then brings like sort of a series of uh, exchanges between Amuraim, um, where one says to the other, you're going to get information about 
a woman coming to collect her estate, make sure that, you know, you can take the money from X, Y, and Z. Um, and then it has the following story. So Ravanan sent, you know, sends a letter to Rav Huna, right? Huna, Chavarin, Shlein, right? And so he greets him as Huna, our friend. When this woman, right, this woman's going to come with a letter. So I think what often would happen is that maybe a woman was living in one town, but her inheritance was in another town or in another rabbi's district. That's what it sounds like, right? So he says, before you give her, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, come make sure that you give her a tenth of her father's estate, basically. So Rav Shesha was sitting with Rav Huna, Amarle, and he's and Rav Huna says to him, Zil Amele, go and say to basically to Ravanan, uh, my reply. And whoever does not say exactly my words is going to be excommunicated. Okay, because he was about to say something very, very harsh, and he knew maybe Rav Shesha wasn't going to be happy to say this. Anan, Anan, right? Notice how he calls him, right? Mimakriye o mitaltale, right? So he says, Anan, Anan, right? Uh, you know, uh, he's asking sort of, so the one-tenth come from the real estate, like from the property, the karka, or from mitaltaline, from the property? Uman be marzacha bereshe. And also tell me who sits at the head of the house of the Marzicha. Now, I'm not going to read the whole story, but basically, Azal Rav Shesha the Kami to Ravanan, Rav Shesha goes to Ravanan, Amarle, and he proceeds to basically say this whole thing to him because he knows he's about to say something very insulting to Ravanan. My Rabbi, right? My great teacher, or my great master, Rav Huna Bereza Rabbi, but Rav Huna is the teacher of a teacher. The Shamute Shamit Mandalo Amarle. And he excommunicates that who doesn't say how he says. So he's, in other words, like, he's basically saying, don't shoot the messenger, right? Right? So I basically have to say the words that he said. And he basically repeats what he was supposed to say back, but he sort of, you know, prefaces it with this whole thing to Rav Anand to basically be like, really, don't, I, I just was told I had to say this. And if I didn't say it, I would get into trouble. Ravanan can't figure out what's going on. Azal Ravanan Lakame de Marukva. So he goes to Marukva. Amrale Chazi Remer, the Marukva we saw about Sadaka the other with his wife on the couple top him ago. Amrale Chazi Marhechi Shlechli Ravuna Nananan. Baod Mazrache de Shlechli Maininu. So he goes to Marukva and he's like, What did I do? Why is he addressing me as a Nananan? And what's this Marzricha that he's talking to me about? So Amarle, Imailach Ize, Gufa So he says, How did it happen? Right? What exactly was like the exchange that you had with him? Amarle Hechi So he says this and this was the, you know, what was what what happened. Amarle, Gavradalo Yadama Ninhu Mazriche, right? So he says, a man who doesn't know what a Mazriche is, Shlachle Ravhuna, Huna Chavrin, sends a letter to Ravhuna addressed as Huna Chavrin. Right, Huna, our friend. So basically, what he's saying is, is that he's basically, uh, you know, he's basically saying, uh, you know, that, um, uh, you know, that like you didn't address him politely. You called him a friend. You're not friends. And the way he showed you that you didn't address him the right way is because he threw out a term that he knew you wouldn't know. And then the Gemara goes on to explain what that term is. It has to do with a mourner and him sitting 
at the head of the table. Um, but anyhow, um, you know, so that's the that's the basic story there. So, uh, you know, I think it's a very, very rich story because it told, talks to us a little bit. Not only was there correspondence, but how did rabbis, you know, expect to be approached? How did rabbis sometimes approach each other, sometimes a little bit over familiar? And I think also we see like they were also human, like Rav Huna did worry about his kavod a little bit. And maybe that's OK a little bit as well. You know, Mar Ufa isn't saying that Rav Huna is in the wrong here. So just I don't know. Lots of rich. This is a very literary page. It's very interesting also, I think. Okay, I'm going to pick up that Mishnah uh, before we close. Um, on Ahmed Bet. So somebody who transfers, he's going he's gonna to divide up his money. Okay, He's going to use um, a third-party um, account, right? Like the idea here is that it's, he's not just handing over money to the daughter. So let's break this down. Hamashlish, it's interesting, right? Because I might think that it would be somebody who's paying a third or something like that, right? But the idea here is that it's a third party who's going to give the father or whoever's, you know, whoever's establishing the will here, right, is transferring the money to give to his daughter for her to make a purchase, presumably of land, after she gets married. The question then is, you know, does she have that control over the money or does that money really go to the husband that she is going to marry? So if she says, and this has to then wait until after she gets married, if she says, my husband is trustworthy for me, meaning I trust him, then the third party should make him he should give over that those funds to the hands or the the oversight of the husband, Divir Rebbe Meir, that's Rebbe Meir's opinion. Rebbe Yossi Omer, v'chi eina ela sadeh v'hi rotza limochra harehi mochura me'achshav. Rebbe Yossi says, hang on, the daughter has her own authority, really, right? Let's say you're talking about a field and she wants to sell it. She can sell it from now, meaning she can sell it that second. The same. The point being that the same way that she has that, the authority to, to have domain over the field. So likewise, she could have domain over the money, meaning if she had actu- an actual field, she would be in charge of it. So cash, she could also be in charge of. So now the Mishnah wants to kind of, uh, you know, round this out. So the Gemara says, what are we talking about here? Meaning all together, we're talking about an adult. Because the moment you're talking about a minor, then then there's nothing that the minor does from a legal standpoint, right? There's no, she doesn't have authority, she doesn't have ownership, she doesn't get to make any decisions. And, you know, if we're talking about an 11 and a half year old as compared to a 12 year old, that might sound a little bit, you know, arbitrary. But if you think about, um, you know, this is what this is what it means to have a uh, an age that you call the age of majority um, and responsibility. There's always going to be some age that is younger than that that does not, you know, have that same thing. Um, the point here being, I think, the question of whether the adult woman is treated like we think, you know, hello, she's an adult and she's got, you know, the authority the same way Rav Yossi says she does. It's not yet clear in the Mishnah why Rabbi May and Rabbi Yossi do not agree. Like what's what's Rav Meir's point? Now the Gemara goes on to talk about that, but in in as far as the mission itself goes, there's no there's no whiff yet as to why. 
Right. There, there, there's no why here at all. Right. Which is kind of interesting. I mean, but did you expect there to be a why? In the mission, no. And I'm glad that the mission that the Gemara goes on to talk about it because, because of course. All right. I, you know, just for the sake of time, we're going to finish up this. But, you know, the Gemara basically then shares a sort of more lengthy Tosefta, which they then compare to our Mishnah and, you know, does one of those, uh, uh, has a focus here between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi, and then basically provides, it has one of those, the Chasure Mixere, right, where the whole wording is not there and it gives us the corrected wording so that they can really understand the machlokas between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi, which is over an adult woman who wants to do something different with that money with that, or instructs the third party with something different after Erusin after was done, after she was betrothed, but before the full marriage took place. So just pay attention to that machlokas as well. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Time with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.